Okay, good evening everyone and welcome back. I'm glad to see you on this beautiful Wednesday evening tonight. We are continuing our study of the attributes of God. This is week number six, so hopefully you all have the handout already. And we've been working through these last five weeks, what we call the incommunicable attributes of God. Those attributes of God that he does not share with us, that are unique to God. And these are the ones that make our brain hurt because they're so foreign to anything of our experience. We looked at God's unity, that God's fully all these attributes all the time. And he never changes on those. And so we saw that he's completely unified. It's not like he feels loving today and wrathful tomorrow. That God is fully all the attributes all the time. We saw that God is independent. That God needs absolutely nothing. He loves his, his people, but he needs nothing. He didn't make the world because he was lonely. He needs nothing. We looked at his et- eternality, that he's outside of time. That God in his being does not have a succession of moments, but he's outside of time, yet chooses to work in time. We looked at the fact that he's a spirit, his spirituality. That he, Because he's a spirit, he can be everywhere. We talked about his omnipresence last week. That God is everywhere, yet no one space can contain him. We're coming to the last of the incommunicable attributes of God tonight. We're going to have a break for the next three weeks. Next week is Vacation Bible School Family Night. I hope you'll come back even if you don't have kids because the kids are going to sing for us and teach us what they've been learning in Bible school. There'll be games outside. It's going to be a fun evening. The next week, we're going to pause our normal activities and do an ice cream fellowship. Just have a chance to build community, so make your best homemade ice cream. We're just going to come. If it's nice enough outside, we'll do it outside. If not, we'll do it in the gym, and we'll just have an evening to eat ice cream and fellowship across the whole church body. Kids, youth, adults, everyone together. And that. Then we'll be off the next week for the 4th of July holiday. And then when we come back in July, we'll start back with the communicable attributes of God. Those attributes that he shares with us in part. And those are big and still big topics, but they don't make our brain hurt quite as bad as the last five or six weeks have on some of these other topics. As you think about the, the, our brain hurting a little bit, trying to think about these attributes, it's good for us because there's a balance in this that's tough. And each of these attributes, we're describing something so different from us, and yet God still moves in ways that we can in part understand. God doesn't need anything, yet he rejoices in us. God is outside of time, but he works in time. God is everywhere, but nowhere can contain him. There's always been this little bit of this tension that we've talked about. And we come to that tonight with God being unchanging. And again, there's a we are so fickle. We change so quickly. This is so different than us. I want you to see the way two different people have wrestled with this and kind of tied this topic into all the other attributes. The first is, is St. Augustine. He was one of the most important of the early church fathers. He was a bishop a long time ago. He was one of the early theologians. And what we have here is in his confessions. And listen to what he says. He says, You, my God, are supreme, utmost in goodness, mightiest and all-powerful, most merciful and most just. You are, and here's tonight's topic, you are unchangeable, and yet you change all things. You are never new, never old, and yet all things have new life from you. You're ever active, yet always at rest. You gather all things to yourself. Through you, you suffer no need. Or sorry, though you suffer no need. You support, you fill, and you protect all things. You create them, nourish them, and bring them to perfection. You seek to make them your own, though you lack for nothing. You love your creatures, but with a gentle love. You treasure them, but without apprehension. You can be angry and yet serene. Your works are varied, but your purpose is one and the same. You are my God, my life, my holy delight. But is this enough to save you? Can any man say enough when he speaks of you? Yet woe betide those who are silent about you, for even those who are most gifted with speech cannot find words to describe you. I think that's what we're all finding as we're working through these attributes of God, is that even those who are the most gifted with speech cannot find words to describe you. We're dealing with attributes of God that are so different than us here. 
we struggle to explain them. Likewise, you've seen me quote this guy a good bit, Herman Bavinck. He was a Dutch theologian in the late 1800s, early 1900s. I want you to see again how he ties tonight's topic into the other topics we talked about. He says, the Bible very positively denies any change in God's being. So if you want a basic definition for tonight, there it is. The Bible very positively denies any change in God's being. There's change around him. There's change in the relations of men to God, but there is no change in God. God's majesty and the glorious character of the Christian confession is apparent in this. That God, though immutable in himself, we'll talk about that word in a minute, is able to create mutable beings, that he, though eternal himself, is imminent in time, that he, though transcending all spatial relations, is present in every point of space, that he, though he is absolute essence, is able to give a distinct existence to transient beings, completely absent from God's eternity is every moment of time, from his immensity, every point of space from his being, and every element of becoming. Now... You can chew on that one tonight and write a little book to try to explain all that, right? But you see the complexities we're trying to describe in our finite thinking, how big, infinite God is, how great he is, how powerful he is, and and we struggle with words. What we saw from Augustine's quote there, we struggle with words. And even this great theologian here has a hard time with trying to describe the words of how to describe God. Well, tonight, turn the page, page number two. Tonight, we're dealing with the fact that God is unchanging. Now, if you think back to our very first week, we talked about the unity of God, that all the attributes are connected. They explain one another. We can't pull out any one attribute and look at them separate from the other attributes. They're all interconnected because it's one God. As you see that tonight, you'll see that the fact that God is unchanging is tied to some other attributes. You tie it to all of them, but two in particular. First of all, this attribute of God being unchanging is related to God's eternality. Again, eternality means that he is outside of time. He has no succession of moments. And that's important because to have change, you had to have a before and an after, right? And so if you lose weight, there's a point you weigh this and there's a point you weigh something different. There's cha- time changes things. As we get older, our appearance changes. You're, as I'm watching my kids grow, they, they're a certain height one year, the next year they're another height because time is changing things. But if God has no succession of moments in his being, if he's eternal, there is nothing to change because he is always constantly all the same all the time. He cannot change. Next, this attribute is related to God's independence. When we change, it's usually because, for the most part, something has affected us. There's been some new knowledge we've received, so we change our thinking. We've changed our exercise habits, so we lose some weight. Someone has encouraged us to do something, we've done it. Most of our changes come because of something that has motivated us. God is totally independent. He needs nothing. Nothing can move God because he is totally independent and needs nothing. Therefore, he does not change. Now, with that said, and kind of the foundation of what we're doing, let's look at some different ways people have struggled to try to explain who God is in terms of the fact he is unchanging. And I'm giving you several of these because... Again, we're struggling with words in our finite thinking to describe God. And so it's good for us to see different ways different people have defined it. So first of all, God's unchangeable. The first one is A.W. Tozer, a great author here. And he just is a very simple definition that we can get our minds around. Always, always, always God acts like God. I mean, at the core, that's what God's unchangeable is. That always, always, always God acts like God. God's going to do what God does all the time. No exceptions on that. I'm going to go a little bit deeper again. Let me quote Herman Bavinck, this, this theologian again. He says, he, God, does not change with respect to his being, nor with respect to his knowing or willing. He ever remains himself. Every change is foreign to God. He transcends every change in time, for he is eternal. In space, for he is omnipresent. In essence, for he is pure being. You see there, Bavink's doing what we're trying to do and wrap these attributes 
together. The fact that God is unchanging is tied to the fact he's eternal. It's tied to the fact that he is a spirit. It's tied to the fact that he is omnipresent. It's tied to the fact that he is unified on that. One of the definitions I really like, though, comes from A.W. Pink, and he says this, God is perpetually the same, subject to no change in his being, attributes, or determination. Therefore, God is compared to a rock in Deuteronomy 32.4 and other places, which remains immovable when the entire ocean surrounding it is continually in a fluctuating state. Because God has no beginning and no ending, he can know no change. And for me, I like images. And that image of God being the rock when everything around is moving is a good image for us. Because God is the only thing that does not change. The universe changes. Stars change. Stars collapse. Stars blow up. Comets hit planets and destroy them, and they become like asteroids. I mean, stuff changes in the universe. Stuff changes here on Earth. Things flood. Volcanoes erupt. Mountains are formed out in the middle of the ocean where there was no mountain. People die. People are born. Everything in the entire universe is constantly changing except for God because he's the one who created all things and made all things to be changing but himself. So he's like this rock in the ocean which is immovable and everything else is in a continually fluctuating state around him. And I just love that imagery of it. And then, of course, it's not a normal Wednesday if I don't quote Wayne Grudem, who's one of my favorite theologians from systematic theology. He says this, God is unchanging in his being, perfections, purposes, and promises. Yet, God does act and feel emotions, and he acts and feels differently in response to different situations. You know, this is why I think I quote Grudem every week, because he brings balance to the attributes for us here. Yes, God is unchanging, and he defines, and we'll look at these things he defines of how God is unchanging, but yet he always clarifies for us, God does act and feel emotions, and God acts and feels differently in response to different situations. So the fact that God is unchanging in his being doesn't mean he doesn't act differently when he's relating to his church versus relating to the sinners out there, and so it helps us with that balance. Now, there's other terms that people use to describe it, so depending on who you're reading, it may not always be called God is unchangeable. The term that's used the most by people is the term immutability. If I told you tonight we're talking about immutability, I didn't think many of you would come, so I decided to choose the term that God is unchanging. But the immutable, think about the word mute, mutation here. To be mutable is to be changing, and mutation is a change in something. So for something to be immutable, that means it's unable to change in this is the opposite of that. So God is immutable. He's incapable of change. Other terms that are used for it, and I think whoever wrote this term made it up because the dictionary doesn't like it. Constantness. There's a word constant. Just put a ness on the end of it. That's what this person did. But God's constantness. But I think you get the idea, though. I think they made up the word. That God is constant. We don't have to wonder what God's mood is today when, when he, because God is always the same. He's constant. When we get up, our spouse may wonder, I wonder if he's going to be in a good mood or a bad mood today, Right? God is not like that. God is constant all the time. And the other term that's a good one, we'll talk more about it, actually the separate attribute later, is God's faithfulness. Because God is unchanging, he's faithful. But that's more of a communicable attribute that we'll talk about in the next few months here. Now what I want you to see about this attribute of God is this truth is revealed, not reasoned. And I can't stress this enough because when we're doing the attributes of God, we're not trying to look at our human experience and go, well, therefore God must be something. We're not just trying to deduce, well, God might be this because this is true, therefore this might have to be true, that we have to do that in some parts of theology. With the attributes of God, that's not the case. It is revelation for us. God has revealed to us directly in Scripture His nature, His character. And so we're not having to try to reason this philosophically. This is revealed truth of God saying, this is who I am. I want you to see in a number of places um, for both the Old Testament and the New Testament. The first is number 23. Numbers 23, verses 19 through 20. God is not man that he should lie, or son of man that he should change his mind. 
Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Behold, I received a command to bless. He has blessed, and I cannot revoke it. Now, the context here is there's a complaint that Balaam, who's giving this oracle, should have cursed the people. The people have not been walking in godliness. And so there's a complaint like, you know, you shouldn't be giving a blessing to these people who've turned from God. And Balaam basically responds and says, God has already pronounced this blessing. God doesn't change his mind. It's not like, well, okay, I get it now. I didn't see they were sinning. So, okay, I'll, I'll revoke my blessing and put a curse on them. He's saying it doesn't work that way with God. God is not a man that he's going to change his mind. When he said God has done it, And so he's saying this blessing stands because God had chosen to do it. And notice the contrast here. Again, this is why this is incommunicable attribute of God. This particular attribute is contrasted with us. God is not a man that he should lie, that he should change his mind. How often do we change our mind? I want spaghetti for dinner. No, I want chicken for dinner tonight, you know. Or I want to go to that place. No, I'm going to go to this place. Or I like that person. No, I don't like that person, you know. We change. We are so fickle. In this contrast, God is not like that. God does not change. First Samuel chapter 15, verse 29. This is the context of Samuel. has just told Saul that God is removing him as king. And so here in verse 29, And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. So God does not have regret. God is not like, oh, man, I shouldn't have done it that way. But I may raise some questions in your mind, and we'll get to that in just a minute. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, also here. For I, the Lord, do not change. I can't get much more plain than that. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Israel, are not consumed. This is the hope of Israel at this point. That God has made a promise to Abraham through the Davidic line, and this is what he's faithful to his promises, and that is why they are still remaining. Psalm chapter 102, verses 25 through 28. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. Again, notice this phrase here at the end. Your years have no end. It's an image for us that time does not change God. Time changes us. Hopefully we're wiser now than we were 10 years ago, right? Hopefully we're more holy than we were 10 years ago. Hopefully we are changing for the better. Time changes us. Time does not change God. His years have no end. No end on this. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. It doesn't get much more plain than that. He's unchanging. This applies to all the Godhead, the full Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit. They are unchanging. God is unified. And then James 1.17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So I hope you see that throughout Scripture, it is affirmed that God does not change. Again, he's immutable. He is not changing. But we have to give a little clarification here. God is unchanging only, this is top of page 3, only in the way Scripture affirms. God is not unchanging in all the ways we might imagine. God is unchanging the ways that he's revealed to us that he is unchanging. Number one, in his being, in his essence of who he is as God, he is always unchanging. Look at Exodus 3.14. We look at this a lot of weeks. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Friends, this just simply is reminding us that who God is is always the same. He just exists. God has always been Father, Son, and Spirit. There's never been a time that he was not triune God. God has always been who he is. He's perfect all the time. There's nothing to change. Herman Bavink, this theologian, says, whatever changes ceases to be what it was. But real being pertains to him who does not change. That which really is remains. 
God is not subject to change, as every change would indicate a decrease in his being. Basically, if God is already perfect, any change would then be... He wasn't fully perfect. If he could get better, if he could get wiser, if he could change, he would no longer have been fully perfect, fully wise, fully everything. And so the change would indicate he wasn't fully perfect in those things. So God cannot change in his being. Closely tied to that is number two. God cannot change in his character and his attributes. You really cannot separate these two because his attributes are just a reflection of his being on this. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says this, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, eternal, unchangeable, but then it qualifies it in his being, his wisdom, his power, his holiness, his justice, his goodness, and his truth. I hope those words sound familiar to you because that's basically a lot of the words on the list of the attributes we're looking at in the months to come. God is unchanging these attributes. Again, A.W. Pink said his power is unabated, his wisdom undiminished, his holiness unsullied, his veracity is immutable, his love is eternal, his mercy ceases not. In all of his attributes, he is unchanging. It's not like God is a God of wrath in the Old Testament, then he becomes wiser and becomes a God of grace. No, God is fully who he is all the time. God is unchanging. God does not grow in things. He doesn't become more loving with time, more wise with time, more patient with time. No, God is who he is all the time. He and his character, he does not change. Number three is in his purposes, his will. Again, this follows from these things. If you're unchanging in your nature and your characteristics, you will be unchanging in what you do because what you do flows out of who you are. Look at this in Psalm 33, 11. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. His counsel, his plans are unchanging. What God wills, God will happen. He doesn't change his mind on stuff. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 13. Also, henceforth, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? Friends, God is so unchanging. If God declares it to happen, all the armies of the whole world together could not stop it. Because God has purposed something to happen, it will certainly happen, and he does not change. Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 through 10. Beautiful passage here. It says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish my purpose. Again, notice this phrase here. From the times of old here, he has declared the end... From the beginning. Friends, we don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't know what's going to happen tonight. God just doesn't know what's happening in the future. He's declared what's going to happen in the future from even before time. God is unchanging. His purposes will surely happen. There's no question of, will Jesus come back one day? Well, yes, God's purposes are unchanging. It's not like he changes his mind on that. Do you realize how frightened that would be if God was like, you know, I'm tired of this. I'm not going to wait till Jesus comes. I'm just going to obliterate the whole world. Like, God... We'd be in trouble. God is unchanging in his purposes. What he said he will do, he will surely do. And with that tie very closely is number four. He is unchanging in his promises and his covenant faithfulness to us. Micah chapter 7, verses 19 and 20. He again will have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins in the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. These are actually the last two verses, of, or the last end of part of chapter 7, the very end of Micah. And this is how the book ends. It's reminding people of the reason God is faithful. is because he had promised to Jacob. He had promised back to Abraham what he would do. And they don't have to worry if God's going to do it. God has promised it will certainly happen. You see it in the Psalms as well. I will, Psalm chapter 89, verses 34 through 37. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Just let that sink in. He says, I will not violate my covenant. How often have we broken promises 
God says, I will not do that. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. Or let's go one more time to Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. People swear by something greater than themselves, and all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, there it is again, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, he who had fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So let me just pause there. Their hope is not in themselves. Their hope is the fact that God is unchanging in his purposes and promises to them. His covenant families. But then pick back up where we just left off. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Friends, the covenant promises of God are our anchor and our hope that God is unchanging what he has promised to do in his covenant faithfulness, he will most certainly, beyond question, certainly do. But I think in most of my weeks, I end up with these words, but wait! Because every week we come to these tough questions in this. You know, if we just stop there, it would be pretty simple. But these are, we're dealing with mysteries. Our finite minds are having trouble with the infinite, of how infinite God works. So if God is unchanging, does God feel differently in different situations and the answer is yes god does feel differently in different situations because remember we affirm that god is unchanging in the ways that he reveals in scripture he's unchanging so he is unchanging in his being and his attributes and his purposes his will and his covenant faithfulness it doesn't mean he's unchanging in his feelings in terms of how he responds situations in this so you see there on your handout god is not indifferent to our changing situations the unchanging god is very aware of our changing situations. So God feels and responds differently to our changing situations. God chooses to have feelings towards us, and we see a variety of these feelings in Scripture. Here's just four. We could give many examples. God feels joy. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. And I love this phrase we talked about before. He will exult over you with loud singing. And so you see here that, that God feels joy in his people right here. But then the next passage for us, God feels grief, Psalm seventy-eight forty. How often they've rebelled against him and grieved him in the desert. God can feel grief when his people turn from him. God feels delight. Isaiah chapter 62, verse 4. For the Lord delights in you. There's a lot more of that passage, but just that phrase. The Lord delights in you. But yet also talking to his, to his people. Anger, Exodus chapter 32, verse 10. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. So God is unchanging in his nature, in his being, his perfections, his will. But yet, as his people do different things, he feels joy, he feels anger, he feels delight, he feels grief. As he's responding, because the way he chose to make things work, to what's going on in our changing situation, he feels differently and different situations. Again, let me quote Herman Bavink. He said, because of his majesty divine, God is able to condescend to the level of the creature. Again, let that word sink in. God's condescending. He's explained to us in ways we can understand. Though transcendent, he's able to be eminent in every creature. While preserving himself, he's able to give himself. And likewise, also, though absolutely maintaining his immutability, 
He's able to sustain an infinite number of relations to his creatures. Infinite number. Guys, God is so big, at the very same moment, he can feel delight at someone worshiping him. He can be feeling grief of someone who's turned away from him. He can feel anger to someone who has profaned his name and feeling love to that one who's struggling and looking to him for help. And all at the same time, because God is fully unified, he's feeling all this. And, and think of all the billions of people on planet Earth. And he is personally aware of everyone's heart, soul, at every single moment, every time, and feels these, these different emotions depending on what's happening in those situations. But in his being, in his nature, he is unchanging. Well, that then leads to the next question, does God change his mind? I've been saying over and over tonight, God does not change, God does not change, God does not change, God is unchanging. Well, in light of that, there's passages in the Bible that say that God relents and God feels sorry. Depending on what translation you use, some translations say God even repents of things. I give you many examples, but here's just three. Genesis chapter 6, verse 6. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Wait, I didn't think God changed. Now God's regretting and grieving. How about 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 35? And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Now, before we go to the next passage, I want you to turn back a page and look at the other passage I had given you from 1 Samuel chapter, actually turn back two pages, sorry, to page two, under the truth is revealed, not reason. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 29. See it there? The second passage. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. For he is not a man that he should have regret. Now go back to the page we're looking at here. You go down seven verses later. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Same passage there. And then Jonah is another example. This is Jonah chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. Jonah began to go down to the city, going a day's journey. He called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. He's coming as a prophet, proclaiming what God has said. In forty days, the doom of the city is certain because of your sin. Pick back up there. And the people of Nineveh believe God. You have the next about three or four verses that I've not included here that explain what their repentance looked like. When God saw what they did, how they turned away from their evil, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Okay. How is God unchanging? And God changes here. How is God not, will not ever have regrets that he regrets that he made Saul king over Israel? I have trouble with this, as we all will, because our finite minds are having trouble understanding how infinite God works. But here's my best explanation of how all this can be true. Friends, and let me just say up front, when we come to mysteries and tensions in the Bible, there are no contradictions. The Bible cannot contradict itself. There are no contradictions. There are what we call paradoxes. And paradoxes are where we affirm two things are true, and we have a hard time explaining in our human limitedness how both of them are true. So there's a little bit of that here. So recognize that. And a lot of times we have trouble with mystery. We have trouble with paradoxes because we want everything to fall into straight formulas and be simple and easy. And God is not a God of our imaginations. God is a God who is so much bigger than us. Our little tiny brains have a hard time with it. But I think there are some explanations here besides just using the paradox trump card of, well, there's a paradox, I can't do anything with that. I don't want to get to that point that we recognize the mystery because in this case, I think the scripture gives us some insight into this. First of all, it comes back to the translation. When we see throughout these texts and most of the other Old Testament texts where it says God relents, where God is sorry. Again, the King James used God repented. I don't think that's a good translation of that word because when we think repent, we associate that with sin. God cannot sin. Scripture's clear. He's not the author of evil. So God doesn't repent in the sense of, oh, I sinned, I need to fix that problem. Maybe that's not what I'm talking about. When it says God relents, or God is sorry here. In fact, in all these, these passages I read, it's actually the exact same Hebrew word is used for all of them. When it says God is sorry, it's a particular Hebrew word. When it says God relents, 
It's the exact same Hebrew word. Our translators just changed the word in trying to explain the context. But the Hebrew word, the English transliteration, and I can't even pronounce it quite right. I'm far from a Hebrew scholar. is nakam. And that is a word that indicates a feeling towards a situation here. And so it says God is sorry, God is grieved, God relents. All those are the exact same word, and it's describing a feeling to a situation that he has at the time. So it reflects God's feeling to the current situation that he is observing, that he already knew about on this. And so, again, the fact that God is unchanging doesn't mean that God does not have feelings. There have been some people over the years who tried to link that. If God is unchanging, therefore he cannot have feelings. That's not true. God, we've seen it throughout Scripture, God has a variety of feelings to things. And so as God in his unchanging nature looks at the situation, he can feel joy when a sinner repents. He can feel grief when someone rejects him again and again and again. God can feel all of these things. So we see these Hebrew words for relenting, being sorry. It's a feeling towards a situation. It's not a change in his purpose. It's not a change in his being. It's rather a change in his, not even a change, but it is an expression of his feeling that be consistently expressed in all the times in those situations, if that makes sense. God is always grieved when his people sin. God is always rejoicing when a sinner trusts Christ. His unchanging nature is expressed in different ways in different situations. So hopefully that makes sense on that word. But then second of all, a lot of times we see God changing. This is number two on page five. That's the relenting of promised judgment. And if you remember back to our study of how to understand the Bible, this is what we call conditional prophecies. So again, if you weren't here when we did the How to Understand the Bible, the, the audio is on the Facebook page and the website. But if you think back to when we study prophecies, throughout the Old Testament, there are all these prophecies, you'll be destroyed, this will happen. Even what we looked at in Jonah, the city will be wiped out in 40 days, and then God relents. Did God change his mind? No. These are what we call conditional prophecies. Now often, as we said when we did that study, con- the conditions are not normally stated. The conditions are implied. The conditions were understood by the people. I'm going to destroy your city. You can almost put an asterisk there. And the asterisk that was understood by people, unless you repent. And so all these judgment prophecies that are full throughout the Old Testament are the prophecies of judgment, footnote, unless you repent. The prophecies that are a call to the people, they're an invitation. Not only judgment is coming, but they're an invitation to repent so that it's changed. So God is not changing his purposes, but rather the prophecies are what God uses to warn people. And if they do repent, then he relents, but not that he was unchanging. Jeremiah 18 is one of those places to where these conditional promises are really explained for us. Again, it's inferred in all the others, but here it's explicitly stated for us. Look at Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 5 through 10. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so you are in my hand, O house of Israel. Now just pause there. Understand God is exercising absolute sovereignty here. The clay has absolutely no right to say the potter. You can't do it that way because God is sovereign over all things. But here's how God has chosen to do things. Pick back up where we left off there. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I'll pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight and not listen to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. So this is a conditional promise. And when you see, like in Jonah and many other examples where God says destruction's coming and then he relents, he's simply in his unchanging nature doing what he has always said he would do and explained here that if people repent, he relents. If they don't, the judgment comes. And so I think with those two things, realizing that the word that's used here for sorrow, repenting, relenting, is an expression of a feeling he has. And we already said that God has feelings. And then understanding these judgment promises 
are conditional, I think helps us understand how it can be said that God does not change, yet God feels these things and God relents on that. But again, there's a paradox there, so it's okay if our minds have a little bit of trouble putting all that together. I want to end tonight, before we go into our discussion groups, with this, and that is this doctrine is essential for our faith. This doctrine is essential for our faith. This is a doctrine that I don't think a lot of people typically think about a whole lot. It's the one that I think really does get neglected in a lot of Christian theology. A.W. Pink is not on your handout. He said, immutability is one of the divine perfections which is not sufficiently pondered. It's a divine perfection that is not sufficiently pondered. Again, most people hear immutability and they're kind of like, eh, I think I'll check out on that one. But it has a lot of significance for our faith. And I've just given you three of what could be many things of why the fact that God is unchanging is so important to us. Number one is the basis of our ability to trust God. Friends, if God is changing, if God is mutable like us, we are, to use a good southern idiom, we are up a creek without a paddle. If God is changing, we have nothing to stand on. Because what if he decides he's tired of putting up with us? What if he decides he's tired of forgiving us and he's no longer going to let our sins be as far as the east is from the west, but today he's going to make sure we get it for it? If God is changing, we have absolutely no grounds to stand on. And this is the hope of the gospel. So many world religions have gods who are fickle, gods who are just whatever God wills at the moment. This is not the God that we serve. The true God is a God who is unchanging. We don't have to wonder if when we stand before him, if he's going to be in a good mood or a bad mood. He's not a judge who is going to be like, who could be bribed or who could be something different. God is unchanging. He is always the same, and that lets us trust him. Again, to quote Wayne Grudem, he says, If God is not unchanging, then the whole basis of our faith begins to fall apart, and our understanding of the universe begins to unravel. This is because our faith and hope and knowledge all ultimately depend on a person who is infinitely worthy of trust because he is absolutely and eternally unchanging in his being, his perfections, purposes, and promises. Friends, realize that the fact that God is unchanging gives us confidence to face tomorrow, to face the trials we go through, whatever it is. If God's prom- if God is, is changing, what happens when he says, I will surely be with you always. I'll never leave you or forsake you. What if he decides tomorrow he doesn't want to deal with that? And so he forsakes us. And we're in trouble. God is unchanging. We can, therefore have a foundation to our faith. Number two, it means we can trust all of his <coughs> promises. Again, this is going to sound really similar, but it, when, when we think of his promises, he is that rock. You can think of the unchanging ocean picture from the beginning of the study tonight. He is the rock that we can depend on because what he said he will do, he will do. Again, the promise that Jesus is coming back, we don't have to wonder about that. The promise that he will be with us always, we don't have to wonder about that. But when we think of promises, we think of the ones that make us feel good, Right? the ones that God is with us. But God also promises about how he handles sin. And so this idea that God keeps his promises should give us a little bit of both hope and fear at the same time. There was an 1800s pastor and theologian of Scotland. His name was John Dick. And here's what he said here about this. The divine immutability, like the cloud which interposed between the Israelites and the Egyptian army, has a dark as well as a light side. It ensures the execution of his threatenings as well as the performance of his promises. And destroys the hope which the guilty fondly cherish, that he will be all lenity to his frail and existing and erring creatures. They will much more lightly dealt with than the declarations of his own word would lead them would lead them us uh, sorry would lead us to expect. We opposed to, we are opposed to these deceitful and presumptuous speculations of the solemn truth that God is unchanging in veracity and purpose and faithfulness and injustice. So friends. Realize this, that when God's promise is true, that doesn't mean like, well, 
I know, God, God doesn't really care if I do that sin. You know, the lies the enemy whispers to us. The fact that God is unchanging his promises means God is very much serious about that sin, as we see throughout all of Scripture. In light of that, Rosemary Jensen, who's with Bible Study Fellowship, and I've quoted her because she has some really cool prayers and praying the attributes of God. She said this, Lord, I confess that at times I don't want you to be immutable. I want you to change your law so that I can do what I want without feeling guilty of sin. I mean, don't you appreciate her honesty? I mean, how many times, though we might not write that, we've actually felt that, right? I want you to change it all so I can do what I want without being guilty of sin. I'm foolish enough to think that if I wait long enough, you might change something. Please forgive me for not thanking you enough that you do not change and with the security that your immutability gives to me and to the world. Friends, the promise of God's immutability unchanging, yes, that gives us hope that he is with us always, but it also should give us a little bit of fear as well because he's not going to be like he's going to just brush over our sin and that. Talk more about that in your groups. And number three, it leads us to worship his greatness. Now, John Wesley, who wrote so many hymns, founder of the Methodist Church, this was in one of his hymns that he wrote. He said, In all things as they change, proclaim the Lord eternally the same. You just imagine people singing that. that all around us is changing. And as we see the unchangingness of our own hearts, our own bodies, our own world around us, it points us back to the fact that God doesn't change. That should lead us to our knees in worship. Again, let me then quote A.W. Pink again. He says, The realization of this ought to make us lie down under a sense of our own nothingness in the presence of him in whom we live and move and have our being. So, friends, these attributes are not just theological concepts that are out there for philosophical discussion. These are attributes that change how we live. Because if whether or not we believe God is immutable changes, can we trust him? It changes, do we believe the promises? Do we cling the promises? And it affects, do we worship him or not? And how do we worship him? So with that said, let's get to our discussion questions, and then we'll break up into groups here in just a minute. So number one, we've, I've already alluded to some of these, but I want you to go a little bit deeper within your groups. How does God's immutability give us hope? And how does it give us a holy sense of fear? So as you think about in your own life, when you think about God's immutability, what put, how does that put hope in your heart, and how does it also put a little bit of a holy sense of fear? Number two, how does God's immutability help us fight sin in our lives? And it's not just some theoretical attribute of God. How does the fact that God's immutable, how does that practically help you tackle sin in your life. Number three, how does God's immutability encourage us in our praying? Because again, most weeks we're going to always tie back the questions to this. How does this attribute of God change how we pray? Because friends, how we talk to God is directly related to how we understand God to be. This is a child, the way they're able to address their parents is determined by how they understand their parents' nature to be. A child whose parents are constantly angry and yelling at them are going to be a lot more timid to ask for things. A child whose parents are just pushovers and give the kid everything they want plus more, that kid may get really boastful and asking and so, you know, we even see that in human relationships. Who we understand God to be changes how we talk to him. So number three, how does it affect our praying? Number four, some people believe that when a person dies, they may get a second chance to believe in Jesus. Y'all know that's wrong. I hope y'all know that's wrong. But how does God's immutability help us correct that wrong thinking? And this attribute has a lot to say about that kind of false belief that floats around. Of, oh, God's so merciful. He's going to let, he'll, they'll be okay. Number five, how does God's immutability encourage us in evangelism, which is sharing Jesus with those who do not believe? So how does the fact God does not change encourage us as we seek to be obedient to sharing Jesus with those who do not believe? Number six, how does God's immutability impact how we view and respond to changing moral values in our society and in the world? Friends, we live in a culture where the moral value system is rapidly changing all around us. How does God's immutability speak to us and affect how we live and respond to that of where we are? And then I'm going to throw this question out periodically. It's fun to think about. What songs do you know that describe this aspect of God's nature? So it's good for us to think about the theology of the songs we sing. And so <clears throat> what songs do you know that describe that God is unchanging? 
So let's divide up into groups on this. Uh, let's see where we want to divide up tonight. CJ, if you want to head to the back corner there. Ira, if you want to come to a group over here. Steve, you're right back there. Let's get a third group there. And I think we want to do a, probably a fourth one. Uh, Greg, there you are. Sorry, I lost you in the room. Greg, what, if you'll come over here and let's get a fourth group going over there. Let's split up into those four groups. I think that'll be about good for tonight. And have fun in groups thinking about some of these topics. God bless y'all. <laughs>